chapter 1, I invite you to turn to page 1201 in the Pew Bible, and it's Hebrews chapter 1. And while you're turning it up, I want to give you just a little bit of background to this uh, letter. It's maybe less familiar than some of the other letters in the New Testament that we regularly read and preach on. But I've been doing a wee bit of a study on Hebrews over the last three or four months. And uh, I just want to give you a wee bit of background so you can appreciate where the writer's coming from. He's probably addressing a small church fellowship. And this, some members of this church fellowship are at the point of giving up on Jesus. They are from a Jewish background. And they're probably living in one of the suburbs or outskirts of Rome. Fellowship probably no bigger than this fellowship. In the past they had stood firm for Jesus Christ and had been enthusiastic and courageous in the witness of Jesus. And you read in chapter 10 of Hebrews and 30, verse 32, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in the face of in the great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And that is probably a description of the hard times under one of the major persecutions that the Roman authorities undertook against the Christian church. Probably about the middle of the first century. Maybe 15 years have now passed. And there are signs of a new outbreak of persecution. Chapter 12 tells us that no one yet had been killed. Chapter 10 tells us that some of the fellowship had stopped coming to church. Chapter 2 tells us that some had stopped listening to the preaching of the word. And throughout this book of Hebrews, there's the constant thought that some are on the brink of throwing in the towel. They're going to go back to the Jewish religion. Why would they do that? They would do it, number one, because going back to the Jewish religion... They wouldn't be persecuted. Jewish religion was acknowledged as a legitimate religion. But Christianity was illegal. Another reason why they go back was because pressure from their peers. Day by day they were meeting with their fellow Jews and former rabbis. And they accused them of abandoning the faith of their fathers. Of overthrowing the religion of the Old Testament. And they were suggesting that this new religion was coming from ignorant fishermen and tax collectors, people with no credibility. Respect your parents, they were saying to these Christian people. Go back to the religion of your fathers. So because of the pressure and the persecution, it was more attractive. It would be easier life just to go back to Judaism. And the writer is writing to those who are on the brink 
of leaving Jesus, of drifting away from Jesus. Let's read chapter 1 with that in mind. This is God's word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angel winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. Which of the angels did God ever say? Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits. Sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word now we're going to sing again this time it's from Psalm number 16 and we're singing verses 4 to 7 and verse 10 and once again another messianic psalm Psalm 16 singing from verses again let's pray together our Father in heaven we're mindful that you have been so good to us in this part of the world And we're glad that we have a great inheritance. Uh, We thank you for the wonder of the gospel that has been preached to us and to our forefathers down through many years. And yet having said that and we realise that we have great privileges, yet in our day and generation so many people are turning away from the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and turning to other gods and turning to the worship of themselves. Our Father, we pray for this congregation as it seeks to uh, witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in these days. We recognize that there's great forces against the church these days, 
and, and there's so many attractions for people that the devil placed before them. Oh God, we pray for the unction of your Holy Spirit as the members of this congregation would seek to witness for you day by day. We pray, Lord, that as they would meet with people in work, in a place of work, or meet with their neighbours, or meet with friends, that they'll be able to witness a good confession of Jesus Christ. And through the work and the witness of your people here, we pray that there will be those who will be added to the church, such as are being saved. We're also mindful of other places in the world where there's trouble. We immediately think of uh, the country of Syria. We're aware of the uh, great conflict that's going on there. We're not really sure what's happening, but we do know that uh, there's all kinds of trouble and there's killings on a daily basis. We thank you that you have your own people there. And we would remember them tonight. Whatever they may be facing in terms of threats of death or maiming or persecution, we pray that you would draw near to them, that they would know your presence and your help. We ask, Lord, that your church will be built up there and that you would use them to be light in that darkened community. We pray, Lord, for the, the, the leaders of the world, politicians who are seeking to bring pressure to bear upon different factions. We, we, we don't really understand what's going on, but we ask, Lord, for wisdom to be given to those that have authority. And we pray that soon there would be a peaceful solution found for the good of the people and indeed ultimately for the glory of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> it's estimated that there have been 60, over 60 billion people that have lived on this earth since the beginning of time. The vast majority of those people have lived and died and we know nothing about them. There are some who, because of their work or their example or their teaching, have been known for a short period. There are others, a small number, who have had an effect upon their society. And a very few, perhaps philosophers and scientists and rulers and politicians, have become world famous. How many people in our world today have not heard of Margaret Thatcher after her death and funeral last week? The one person who stands out above everyone else that has ever lived is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's attracted a combination of attention, devotion, criticism, adoration and opposition. His recorded words are scrutinized and analyzed and criticized and sifted and studied. At any given time, 20 centuries after his death, several million people are studying what he said and what he did. Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know, we don't even know the date of his birth. 
and yet time is divided between B.C. and A.D. He never wrote a book, but thousands of books have been written about him. He never painted a picture or composed poetry or music, but he's the subject of songs and plays and films. He never raised an army, but millions of people have enlisted his followers, and many have laid down their lives as martyrs for his cause. Jesus never travelled very far, not compared to the way we travel today. He didn't really address huge audiences, as some people today address huge audiences. He only had a three-year tenure of ministry, and yet millions and millions of people across the known world today worship him and adore him. Never owned any property. He had to borrow a coin, he had to borrow a donkey, he had to borrow a boat. And yet, the buildings that have been erected in his name would cost trillions of pounds today. This man has had a profound effect upon the world more than any other person that ever lived. But who is he? Opinion is divided. Some see him just as a religious guru. Others see him as a mystic. Some see him as a healer. Some say he is a hypnotist. Some say he is a magician. Some even say he was a sexual deviant. Was he a freedom fighter? Or was he a good man? There's many far-fetched ideas as well as the ones I've just mentioned. People outside... People have different opinions as to who Jesus was. Was he a saint or sinner? Was he the Christ or a crank? Was he the Messiah or a madman? Who was he? The writer to the Hebrews was addressing people who believed that he was the Son of God and their Saviour. And they worshipped him as God. But as I've indicated earlier on, because of the threat of persecution and because of peer pressure from their Jewish friends and rabbis, they were having second thoughts about worshipping Jesus as God. You see, if, if they could just accept that Jesus was a good man, maybe even a, only a prophet, then the threat of persecution would be lifted and they would be accepted within their broader Jewish community. Doubts were therefore beginning to arise in their minds concerning Jesus. Some were at the point of drifting away and going back to Judaism. They were on the point of giving up on Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews wants to assure them that that would be the worst thing they could do. In the first two verses to summarize First verse, verse 1 and half of verse 2, basically what the, the, the writer is saying to the people is, look, in the past, in the Old Testament, you had revelation. It was partial. It was fragmentary. Now in the New Testament, you have the final and the full revelation. The completed revelation. Why would you go back to the partial when you've got access to the final and the complete revelation in Jesus? Then he moves on and he wants to tell them who Jesus really is. 
They were thinking of going and drifting away from him. Who is this Jesus? The writer was concerned that they would devalue him and just see him as a good man. And so in verses 2 and 3, he tells them seven things to underline the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do tonight is just to highlight these seven things. That doesn't mean it's going to be double the time of my normal sermon, which is usually a three-point sermon. But it's going to be hopefully helpful to you. C.H. Spurgeon, in, on the 21st of May in 1882, he started preaching on these verses by saying, All I have to do tonight is to preach Jesus. And that's all I have to do tonight as well. Preach unto you Jesus. Maybe, maybe you are facing persecution in your workplace, in your street. Maybe you are under pressure to renege on Jesus, just like the recipients of this letter. Well, hopefully as we see the uniqueness of Jesus tonight, that any such thoughts will be taken from your mind and we'll be left in wonder, love and praise as we see afresh who Jesus is. First thing we're told here about him is he is the heir of all things. Verse 2, these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Imagine a rich man with only one son. What happens to all the riches when that rich man dies? It will pass to his son. All his titles and all his privileges will pass to the son. The son is the heir of the whole estate. And everything passes at the point of the rich man's death. Now God can't die, obviously. But the writer is using this well-known analogy to help us to grasp that everything that belongs to God also belongs to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that as creator, he's the natural heir of all things. Everything in the universe has its purpose and destiny in him. In the future, everything will belong to him. And everyone will see that. And as well as the creation, he will have a people as his inheritance. He died on the cross in order to purchase for himself a bride. And in the future it will be seen that Jesus Christ will inherit his bride. You and I, if we've trusted in him. The church of Jesus Christ purchased by his own blood. Jesus is the heir of all things in heaven and on earth. Secondly, he's the creator of the universe, through whom he made the universe, the end of verse 2. This man is no mere local preacher. At the beginning, he was creating the expanding universe. Now, once I start talking about creation and the universe, I'm out of my depth. I'm quite simple. In my mind, I have no... Uh, interest in science and I wasn't good at science in school and all of that I go out and I at night and I see the stars, I look up to the sky I see the stars and the moon 
what comes into my mind is there must be a creator. And I think sometimes of Psalm number 8 where it says, You have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. I look, I say there's a creator. There must be. And that creator is Jesus. But apparently when I or you or I look up to the sky and see the stars and the moon, apparently we're only seeing a very small part of the created universe. I'm going to read this bit because it's, it's difficult. We only see a small part of the created universe. There's a Cambridge physicist called Stephen Hawkins. He's no friend of Christianity. In fact, he's very hostile to Christianity. But in his book, A Brief History of Time, here's what he says, that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral that looks to other galaxies like a twirl in a pastry roll, and that it is over 100,000 light-years across, about 6 million trillion miles. He says, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy in itself containing some 100,000 million stars. It's commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies is 3 million light years. Now, did you get all that? Could you answer a few questions on that if I asked you? I'm baffled by those facts. Whether they're correct or not, I don't know. But what I do know is this. The writer to the Hebrews is telling me that whatever is out there, it was created by Jesus Christ. He's the creator of the universe. He created every speck of dust in the hundred thousand million galaxies of the universe, if there are that number. He created every atom and leptons and electrons, all with no measurable size. He's the creator of all things. John 1 verse 3 also says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Who is this Jesus? The agent of creation, whatever size it is. Third point about Jesus is he sustains all things by his powerful word. I'm missing out a couple of things for a moment. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's actively holding up all things in the universe by his powerful word. Paul says the same, states the same thing in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He keeps the planets in orbit by his authoritative word. He has been the agent of creation and now he continues to sustain his universe. Nothing happens by chance. He's the one that holds the universe in the palm of his hands. Again, that's beyond my comprehension. This Christ transcends my thoughts, but he upholds the universe. Let's pause a moment and just apply that to ourselves. This God that these people were worshipping, this Jesus, 
He was powerful enough to create the universe. He's powerful enough to sustain the universe. Now if he's powerful enough to create the universe and sustain the universe, then he's powerful enough to look after you and me. Persecution might come, and he's directing his thoughts to these who, because of the threat of persecution, were going to turn their back on Jesus. Well, if this Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and nothing happens by chance, and everything happens because of his direction, then these Christians should be able to see that if he allows persecution to come to them, Jesus would sustain them and hold them. And therefore they could trust in him. I wonder are you worried and troubled and facing stresses and wondering about giving up? The Lord Jesus knows your thoughts and your anxieties. He's powerful enough to hold you. He holds you in the palm of his hands. And nothing comes into your life but that is designed by him. For your good and for his glory. When I was a teenager, unfortunately too many years ago now, used to go to CE and first port it down and we used to uh, sing a wee chorus. And I know you don't sing choruses, but don't worry about that. We chorus that went like this. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though trials oppress us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us Alone. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. His promises are true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. That's the Jesus of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. He's the one who's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of the universe. Go back a few phrases and you get the fourth one. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now for the Jewish people, uh, the, the glory of God was a visible and outward expression of the majestic presence of God. You remember when the law was given at Mount Sinai? In Exodus chapter 24 it says this. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Zion. Sorry, Mount Sinai. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then you remember that the Israelites went into battle and they had the Ark of the Lord and the Ark of the Lord was a symbol of God's presence. And you remember when they were fighting and they lost the battle and the Ark was captured and, 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 it, and it says in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 21 the glory of the Lord has departed. It was a sad day for them. In the New Testament this same glory is seen in Jesus Christ. Now, he's not a reflection of the glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. There's a difference there. Think of the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. The sun radiates the light because the sun is the source of light. Jesus is not like the moon. He doesn't just reflect the glory of God. He is God. He radiates God. 
the glory of God. Remember in John chapter 1 and verse 14 it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus perfectly manifests the glory of God. Point number five, Jesus is the revealer of God. Verse three again, uh, is the exact representation of his being. This suggests that he has the very stamp of God's nature. I've got a coin in my hand. There's an image of the queen on this coin. The image here perfectly corresponds to the image on the die. In other words, it exactly matches what was on the die. And Jesus exactly matches God. He is the, in very essence God. Philip asked the question of Jesus one day, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus says, have I not been with you for so long? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What he's saying is, look upon me and you'll see what God is like. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 17, he's the image of the invisible God. He is completely the same as God. Here again is another mystery. I can't fully fathom this and understand it. He's God, but he's separate from God. He's a distinct person by himself, in himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were introduced to the doctrine of the Trinity here. Beyond my comprehension. But all I know is that the Bible tells me there's one God and there's three persons. Not three gods, but one, per one God in three persons. And what the writer of the Hebrews wants these recipients to grasp is that the one who came to live amongst them and the one that they were worshipping was not just a mere man. He wasn't just an ordinary man. He was God and man at the same time, unique in his person. As the Nicene Creed says, he was very God of very God. The one who lived 2,000 years ago, the one who flung the universe into being, the one who sustains the universe, he is God manifested in the flesh. The revealer of God. Number six, Jesus is the redeemer of God's people. It says, after he had provided purification for sins. This is the, one of the central themes of the book of Hebrews. The writer introduces it here to illustrate the wonder, not just of the person of Jesus, but what he has done. He provided purification for sin. How did he do that? He offered himself on the cross. And when he was dying on the cross, he was bearing upon himself the wrath of God. In order that we would not have the wrath of God upon us. You see, by nature we're sinners, all of us. And because of our sin, if God is to remain just, he must punish us and punish all our sins. How could God forgive us and yet maintain his justice? He did it by putting Jesus Christ on the cross. So that he 
the God-man, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, that he would take upon himself the punishment that is rightly due to us. But Jesus took it in order that I might be forgiven. He provided purification for sin. And there's an amazing contrast here just in these phrases, the one who continues to sustain the universe by his powerful word year after year, century after century, he paid the price of sin once and for all 2,000 years ago. The continuous work of sustaining the universe, the once payment for sin. He did for sinful men and women like us what we could never do for ourselves. He provided purification for sin. Finally, he's the ruler of the universe. Verse 3, having provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. (coughs) Jewish recipients of the letter were very familiar with the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. They knew about the work of the high priest. Once a year the high priest would uh, enter into the Holy of Holies. You know that the temple area was divided into two. There was the holy place and then behind the curtain there was the Holy of Holies. And, and that was where they believed that symbolized the presence of God. And, and the, the high priest was only allowed to go behind the curtain once a year. He had to go with a a, a sacrifice for his own sin and and he he brought a sacrifice for the sin of the people. It was a high moment of drama and and just in case things went wrong they tied a little rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if things went wrong they'd be able to pull him out because they weren't allowed to go in behind the curtain because no one apart from the high priest could do that. And so he went in year after year bringing his sacrifices offering sacrifices for himself and for his people he did it year after year after year Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins But when this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see what it's saying there? The high priest or the priest stands and performs his duties. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. What's the significance of sitting down? Job done. The job's done. High priest's work was never done. Year after year after year, he offered the sacrifices. Never done. Never finished. Jesus, he offered his one sacrifice and he sat down. Finished. On the cross, didn't he cry? It is finished. Job was completed. Sitting down indicates that the job has been completed. So Jesus is now seated at the right, the highest place. He's the seat of distinction 
at God's right hand, the work has been finished. Seven facets of the wonder of his gleaming brilliance. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the one that is the exact representation of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the redeemer of God's people. He's the ruler of the universe. This Jesus is unique. How does that apply to us? Firstly, this all-powerful Christ can surely look after me in my situation. I don't know your situation, but he can look after you. He holds the universe in his hands, and he can look after me. Therefore, I should trust him. Secondly, this man, Jesus, is beyond my comprehension. He transcends my best thoughts. Surely, I should seek to learn more about him in order that I might be inspired to progress in the Christian faith. Thirdly, if he has paid the price for sin, for all my sin, and has sat down, and surely that means that all of my sins have been dealt with. All. Get that word, all. All my past sins have been dealt with. There are plenty of them. All my present sins are dealt with. Any sins that I'll commit in the future have been dealt with. I do not need to try and attain and to maintain my salvation. Jesus Christ paid the price. He sat down. Our Saviour is seated, indicating that he has paid the price. The debt has been paid. All of my sins are forgiven. I wonder, Christian, have we grasped that fact? All of your sins are forgiven. If you're not a Christian, this is the wonder of the gospel that Jesus died to take away your sin. There's nothing you need to do. You don't need to add to it. I'm reminded of a story of a farmer who was trying to, to uh, help his, his neighbour who was a carpenter understand the finished work of Christ. Uh, and the, the carpenter couldn't understand it and one day the farmer needed a gate and he commissioned this carpenter to, to, to build him a gate for the particular and they, they agreed a price and the, the carpenter went about making his gate. He got it made and he hung the gate and it was brilliant. Fantastic. Great job. And the next day he was driving past he noticed the farmer with a chisel and a hammer and he was chiseling away at his gate. And he shouted over to him and said, What are you doing? You're ruining my gate. No, no, I'm just putting a few extra wee touches to this gate. Eventually he hit the chisel too hard and the gate collapsed. The carpenter said to the farmer, Look what you've done. You've ruined my work. And the farmer said, Yes, and that's what you're trying to do with Jesus' work. You're chiseling, you're, add, you're adding your little bit. And actually... As you add your little bit, you're actually destroying what Jesus Christ has done. 
Friends, he has completed the work. There's nothing more to add to it. He's done it all. Finally, this morning you were thinking of Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armour of God. Yes, we are in a battle. What do we do in the battle? Put the armour on. But we also need to fix our eyes on the captain. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers, fix your thoughts on Jesus. What we have to do is gaze upon him. Focus on him. The more we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater our faith will be. And the more we grasp hold of who he is, the less we will want to drift back to other attractions in the world. May we be able to see clearly who this Jesus is. And may we be lost in wonder, love and praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews and for what the writer is telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what we've been thinking about tonight and meditating upon is not new to us. We've just been reminded of of things that we've known already. We pray, Lord, that as we focus and think about Jesus, that our hearts will be stirred to love him more and to serve him better. And if any of us are having a difficult time and the devil is putting the thoughts into our mind to go back and to drift away, Lord, focus our eyes upon Jesus and that we may see who he is and that we will serve him all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.